Hello, everyone, and welcome to Myth in the Mojave, 30 minutes of storytelling and conversation about mythology and why it's important to our lives today. I'm your personal mythologist, Catherine Savela. Wherever you may be in this wide, beautiful, crazy world of ours, you are part of this story circle. And I hope that wherever you are, you're enjoying good health. (laughs) I am in the process of recovering from my biannual cold, and hopefully that's not going to interfere too much with this recording today. I'm not exactly complaining. Getting a cold every two years is hardly the end of the world, uh, though it sometimes has felt like it. Anyway, today I want to share a bit of the mythological background of the stars that here in the West we commonly call the Big Dipper and the constellation that contains the Big Dipper called Ursa Major. I started looking into this as part of a talk that I gave recently to a local group of historians. And as I was thinking about constellations, it occurred to me that there's a parallel in this tendency to create name and tell stories about constellations, to choose those particular patterns out of all the possibilities in the night sky, and human consciousness and the process of myth-making itself. I mean, one of the primary purposes of our consciousness is to create order from chaos, from all of the various inputs that we get from the environment around us. And we organize all of that. We make stories up about it. We attribute meaning then to them. And this is where we start getting into the realm of the mystery and myth. All cultures tell stories about the night sky. The beauty and the mysterious order of the celestial bodies have been a constant source of inspiration and speculation for people for thousands and thousands of years. Now, today we have all kinds of technologies and our modern way of life alter our experience and our perception of the night sky. And it's too bad, honestly, living here in the desert My ability to see the Milky Way, for example, is one of the things that I value most highly. And yet, despite all the obstacles, when we get a chance to look up into the sky, when we see the full moon rising, even if we're in our car driving down the highway, the wonder remains, doesn't it? The wonder remains. And also, I'd like to suggest the concepts, or the truths even, that we have derived from the natural world, and in particular from our observation of the operation of those bodies in the sky, the planets and the stars. Concepts and truths that are fundamental to our way of being in the world and our understanding of how the world works. I'm going to elaborate on this idea when we talk about the Big Dipper and the story that I want to tell you, which is from Greek mythology. It's the myth of Callisto. But before I do, I want to mention a book that I have been dipping into 
that I found to be really valuable in case this topic is of particular interest to you. It's called Beyond the Blue Horizon of the Sun, Moon, Stars, and Planets by E.C. Krupp. And Krupp was the chief astronomer and director of the Griffith Observatory in Los Angeles for many years. So the way that he brings together very accessible science, the astronomy, as well as this meticulously collected mythological background, it's just, it's really great. And I think it's clear that Krupp, like me, sees that although we have moved beyond a lot of the mythology, outgrown some of the metaphors and symbols, or forgotten what they mean, or embedded them in other stories, more contemporary myths or theories, that fundamental concepts and truths that we rely on every day and derived millennia ago from the night sky are still relevant and important. Let's get on with the Big Dipper. Now, the Big Dipper is one of those patterns that everyone around the world has a story about. Some peoples have seen it as a parrot or a plow, but one of the most common images is a chariot or a wagon. This image of the Big Dipper goes back as far as 700 BCE in recorded history, where it's found on tablets that were created by the Sumerians in Mesopotamia. But it's well known that this idea is much older than that, Just sticking with Sumerian culture, archaeologists have found chariots with the markings and symbols of the Big Dipper, chariots that were marked in symbols of the Big Dipper and also constructed in the shape of the Big Dipper that are dated back to 2600 BCE and beyond. And the story that is generally told about the Big Dipper as a chariot or a wagon is that it is heavenly transport for kings and the supreme sky gods. The supreme sky gods. Because the Dipper turns around the North Pole. The North Star and the North Pole, then, as the world axis. This isn't a purely romantic notion. The Big Dipper and its relationship to the North Star performs very important observable functions around which we have created concepts of both direction and time. The compass pointing north and also the calendar that is time as the stars rotate counterclockwise around the pole. If you go outside night after night and try and observe this change in the location of the Big Dipper, you're not going to see it because it's far too subtle. But if you do track it on a seasonal basis, it'll be very obvious to you that the Big Dipper's orientation to the North Star is different in the spring than it is in the summer, and then the fall, and then the winter. We have this steady pull and measurable movement, which early people took as a sign of cosmic order and of eternity. 
and recognizing the importance of these two things as ordering principles in human experience, they develop stories about how this was then a wagon or a chariot that was transport for the most important principles of the sky, either their supreme sky gods, as I said, and or their primary kings. So over time, this wagon was the transport of Sumerian gods. It was the transport of Odin in Norse mythology. It was the transport of Charlemagne and also of King Arthur. The Big Dipper is part of the constellation Ursa Major. And we get that name Ursa Major from the Latin Ursine, which means bear. And they got this idea of the bear from the Greeks. The Greeks also saw and used this notion of the Big Dipper as a wagon. But they had this larger story about the larger pattern called the bear. And parenthetically, our word Arctic comes from the Greek arctos, which means bear. This notion of the bear is a very old. Homer refers to it in passages in both the Iliad and the Odyssey, and he makes references to sailors sailing by it, using the relationship of the bear to the North Star. But he only talks about there being one bear. And some of you may have already noted that when I say Ursa Major, I'm leaving out Ursa Minor, that is the little bear, that is the little dipper. And it seems that the Greeks later on heard about Ursa Minor from the Phoenicians, another people who were great sailors, and they actually used the Little Dipper in its relationship to the North Star as one of their primary navigational tools. The Greeks then incorporated this smaller bear into their story as well, and it's this most famous myth of these two, the myth of Callisto, that I want to tell you now. Callisto was a very beautiful young woman who was a handmaid to the goddess Artemis. Now, Artemis was the goddess of the wild, the wild feminine. She was a virgin goddess. She belonged only to herself. In one of the famous stories of her, we're told that when she was a little girl, she got onto her father Zeus's lap And he was so charmed by her, he asked her what she wanted. He promised that he would give her whatever she asked for. And Artemis said, well, in that case, I want to wear a short tunic. I want my own knife and bow and arrow. I don't ever want to get married. And I want to live on my own in my own place, out in the woods, in the mountains, far, far, far away from Mount Olympus and all of this quote-unquote civilization. And Zeus granted these wishes. Artemis then was also the goddess of the hunt. And she insisted that all of her handmaidens live out in the wilderness as virgins, far from the company of men, 
and hunt together in groups. And this was the life that Callisto was happily living. This is the life that Callisto was happily living when one day, one day when they were out hunting, she encountered the god Zeus, or rather, he encountered her. Callisto was resting in a grove of trees by herself when Zeus saw her, and he was immediately taken with her natural, unadorned beauty and noted that she was quite, quite alone. He knew that she had taken a vow to the goddess Artemis and was certain to refuse his advances. And so he disguised himself and appeared to Callisto in the form of Artemis. When Callisto saw the goddess Artemis coming to her, she jumped up to greet her, was very pleased to see her mistress, and Artemis gave her a friendly kiss, and then a more passionate one, and it suddenly Callisto realized that this was not Artemis that she was dealing with, but it was too late to resist, and Zeus, being the ultimate god, was not someone that anyone could resist anyway, and so Callisto was overcome. She was impregnated from this one encounter, and for a while she managed to hide her condition from the goddess and from her fellow handmaidens, until one day, One day, Artemis insisted that all of them go together to one of her favorite, most secluded swimming holes to bathe together. And Callisto lingered on the shore because she really didn't want to take her clothes off. And finally, Artemis noticed this and insisted that she disrobe and the other women took off her gown and lo and behold, her condition was revealed. Well, Artemis was horrified, and Callisto was turned out. There simply was no way that a woman who had lost her virginity was going to stay in Artemis's company. Now, some versions of the story say that it was Artemis herself who turned Callisto into a bear, but there are many others who say that once she was out in the world and no longer under the protection of Artemis, she became much easier for Zeus's wife, the goddess Hera, to track down. Hera was very frustrated and angry at her husband's many infidelities, and probably because she could not go after him directly, very effectively, since he was Zeus, she meted out very harsh punishments on the mortal women with whom he committed adultery. And Hera started looking for Callisto. This poor young woman was left to wander on her own, surviving by good luck and skill and the occasional kindness of strangers. She gave birth to a son, and lived with him out in the woods. 
and it was Callisto and her young son who were finally discovered by the goddess Hera. Now, just as Hera was about to swoop in and take her revenge, Zeus became aware that she had been found, and he came in immediately to save Callisto, and he did this by turning her into a bear. Yeah, thanks a lot, right? He turned her into a bear and left her son alone. Well, the boy was taken in by others and lived out there wandering the woods, grew up to be a hunter like his mother. And one day, when he was a young man, he was out hunting when he saw a bear. Well, and yes, this bear was Callisto. And she had been out living the life of a bear when she saw this young man, and something ancient in her stirred. Something about this young man touched her memory of motherhood, and she realized that this was, in fact, her son. Without thinking about it at all, she made move towards the young man, wanting to come closer to him, and of course all he saw was a bear. And so he got out his bow and arrow and prepared to kill her, and once again Zeus saw this and intervened, and his solution this time was to turn the young man into a bear. And he took the two of them then and threw them up into the sky where they would be safe forever from the machinations of Hera and from any further misunderstandings they might perpetrate on each other. And there we have it. Ursa Major, Callisto, the mother, and Ursa Minor, the son, whose name was Arctos. Now that's a good story you may be thinking to yourself, but it hardly explains why a bear. When you look up at those stars, do you see a bear? I've had a few people tell me that they do. I certainly don't. So what led the Greeks to imagine a bear and give us this story of Callisto? Well, I have a few thoughts about that. Callisto's name means most beautiful. And this was also a title for the goddess Artemis. Artemis was also called the most beautiful. So it suggested parallel here between the mortal woman and the goddess. Further, the goddess Artemis often appeared in the shape of a she-bear. Another parallel. And that brings me to one of the deeper meanings that we find in the figure of Artemis herself, and that is the relationship between the hunter and the hunted, between who is being eaten and who is doing the eating. We know that we occupy both of those positions at some point in our life. This is that fundamental mystery that life depends on death, or that, as Campbell used to say, life feeds on life. And Joseph Campbell further said that grappling with this paradox, coming to terms with the fact that you have to kill to keep yourself alive, 
is the essential problem that has given rise to all mythologies. Now you may remember another story about Artemis, the story of Artemis and Acteon, which can also be read as an illustration of this truth. The young hunter Acteon is separated from his companions and stumbles upon the naked Artemis at her bath, and she then turns him into a stag, which is another one of her holy animals. Acteon as stag is then torn apart by his own hunting dogs. So again, we have this, the hunter becoming the hunted. The hunter becoming the hunted. And the divine principle in the form of Artemis as present in the mortal, in her mortal parallel as Acteon or Callisto. When we look up and see Ursa Major, we see this essential truth and the spirit of wild nature on the celestial level as a guide and ordering principle. There's something profoundly wise about that, I think. And I found myself thinking about this and how the impulse to do that, to put that idea, that awareness up in the sky like that, how that reflects a a deep sense of the sacredness of life. And look at where we've come as we've lost that. How we've lost that sense of the sacredness of life in Western culture anyway is a long story and a big topic. But I find myself thinking about the hierarchy of being, for example. This notion that some lives are more important than others. That some creatures are more evolved and therefore more important than others. And isn't it interesting that the hierarchy we've created puts the human being on top? And how this hierarchy of being has allowed those beneath us to become less valuable. And ultimately, over time, to become commodities. Isn't everything a commodity now? Does it horrify you that other sentient beings that we eat are talked about as if they are merely resources Packaged flesh in plastic? It does me. And I wonder, when I think about the incredible tragedy in Florida, something that those teenagers are skillfully forcing us to admit is hardly unimaginable, is in fact far too common in every day in our culture. I wonder about the connection between our willingness to commodify some lives and the callousness and brutality of our culture. Can we, in fact, commodify any life without risking bringing that idea into our notion of the human and human life? This idea that life feeds on life and that there is a mysterious and important and profound cyclical quality to all of this that means that we should value everything, value our ability to eat at the same time that we value what we eat, isn't limited just to the Greek. 
And one other quick example here before I leave you for today. The Mi'kmaq people in Canada have a story about the Big Dipper. And they also see this as a bear, a bear that's being hunted by three birds. So if you imagine the Big Dipper, you know there are four stars that form the, the, the cup part and three that form the tail or the ladle. Well, imagine those four stars as being the bear, containing the shape of the bear, and the three tail stars as the birds. Well, the story they tell follows the rotation counterclockwise of the bear around the North Star. In the spring, the bear emerges, and the birds decide that they want to hunt the bear. They chase the bear all summer. They catch and kill it in the fall. And this in the fall, the Big Dipper is lying on its back, so to speak, below the North Star. And in the winter, the spirit of bear finds another bear hibernating and then comes to inhabit it. So when spring rolls around, there is the bear again, emerging from its cave, occupying its expected position relative to the North Star. For every time bear is killed, bear appears again. I said earlier that we have found our most profound truths in the natural world, and many of them in the existence and operation of the heavenly bodies, of the stars and the planets and the comets and the moons, that they exist and how they appear to operate from our perspective here on Earth. And although we may not be able to see them as clearly or as often as our ancestors have, they are still there. And we can still bring ourselves into contact with the truths that they contain, with the meanings and the concepts that we have found there that have given rise to all of the conditions of our human existence. I mention this because when I talk to people in my culture, in mainstream Western culture, about the natural world, I find a tremendous amount of grief. Grief because our ideas have taken us so far out of the world, have cut us off from our home. But the fact is, we can rejoin. We can rejoin that world because, as Paul Shepard said, we can go back to nature because we never left it. (laughs) We are still of this world. We are still made of the things of this world. And this world and our own bodies, as we now know, are all made of stardust. That's it for me, Catherine Savela and Myth in the Mojave for this week. Feel free to contact me if you have questions and comments about today's program. I'd appreciate it if you would share the word about Myth in the Mojave with any friends or family that you have who may be interested in it. And if you're finding something of value in this program, please consider joining the Myth in the Mojave community on Bandcamp. For only $5 a month, you have unlimited access to all of the Myth of the Mojave programs archived there, as well as free downloads of everything new that I create. 
You will also play an essential role in making future programs possible. Thank you so much for listening. Please tune in next time. And until then, happy mythmaking and keep the mystery in your life alive. <laughs>